Hey, I, I, I'm really glad we're doing it. You know, I, I'm, I don't think proud is the right word. You shouldn't say you're proud of your pastor, but I'm, I'm glad that Kevin's venturing into this book. Um, because my guess is that, that most of you either A, just have kind of maybe skipped over Ecclesiastes and haven't read it, or you've kind of read it and come to the end of it and gone, well, that was weird, and just kind of moved on. Am, am I right there? That, that, that kind of represents the majority of our interaction with Ecclesiastes. And, and so super excited that Kevin has decided to, uh, to walk through this book. And I'm, I'm glad that I get to be a part of doing that with him and with us as a, as a body of believers. Um, and the truth is that going through this, this book is, is not easy. Um, Kevin's making it look easy, then he's doing an excellent job because it's really not easy. Um, but I think at the end, I don't think, I know, at the end it's going to be an extremely fruitful study for us as a congregation. And I think one thing we need to keep in mind as, as we kind of keep working through this book, and, and not just, let's say not just Ecclesiastes, but really any portion of Scripture, because let's be honest, there's other portions of Scripture where, where we run into difficulties, where we're trying to understand it, we're trying to press through it, and, and we just kind of sometimes feel like at our wit's end. Um, so I think it's important to remember what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 and 17. And, and what Paul says there, and, and you probably know this verse, but he says, All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. I think what's really interesting about that passage is we read that in the New Testament, so we probably readily just automatically associate what Paul's saying with the New Testament. But the truth is that when Paul uses the word Scripture there in 2 Timothy, all he has accessible to him is the Old Testament. I mean, the New Testament is literally under construction. That doesn't mean that this verse doesn't apply to the New Testament. most certainly does. But he is thinking about Genesis through Malachi primarily. And so if our desire as a body of believers, if our desire as a church is to be equipped for every good work that Christ has called us to, right, then all of Scripture is the tool that God has given us to shape us and inform us and to teach us, which includes Ecclesiastes. So there's a temptation maybe just to push it aside. There's a temptation maybe to breeze through it, but that would mean that we would be less than fully equipped to do what God has called us to do. So we're going to continue to trudge, trudge, walk, I don't know, through this book. Um, I don't usually title my sermons, but I know that these end up on the internet. And hopefully you take notes. Um, if you don't, take good mental notes. But I've titled, uh, the title for today is The Frustration of Time. The Frustration of Time. So let's look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. We're going to be in verses 1 through 15. Am I, am I coming through a little loud, or is that just me? Am I good? All right, stop it right now. That's enough out of you. All right, Ecclesiastes 3, 1 through 15. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. 
a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given the children of man to be busy with, he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into the heart, into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceived that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. This is the word of the Lord. May he be glorified at the reading of his word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, Lord, we come before you this morning as we continue just to drink deeply from your word, Lord. And we come confessing that Ecclesiastes is, is in your word, it's inspired, and it is profitable, as the Apostle Paul said, to teach us and instruct us and shape us and mold us so that, Father, we might be equipped for every good work that you have prepared for us. And so, Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom this morning. We pray that you would open our eyes that we might see wondrous things in your word. And Father, we pray that you would be glorified in the preaching and the teaching of your word and that we, your people, would be encouraged this morning. We pray, Father, also that your Son would be glorified in our midst and that as Christ is exalted, that we would be led to worship him all the more. Bless this time now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. As we look at Ecclesiastes, right, the, the major part uh, or the main portion of Ecclesiastes focuses on the teaching of this man we know as the preacher or the teacher in Ecclesiastes. And he has a, a very keen awareness, and he, he feels in a very real way the brokenness of life. And it's because of this awareness that the preacher struggles deeply to find meaning in life. So as we have heard and as we have read so far uh, we have seen the preacher go on different avenues to seek out meaning and purpose in life, and every time he comes to the same conclusion, right? Life is vanity. Or maybe a, a better translation would be that life is enigmatic. It's an enigma. It's, it's, it's difficult to get your hands on. It's difficult to understand. Meaning is elusive. Seems like every time he's got his, his hands around the purpose and the meaning of life, it just moves through his fingers like a vapor. Now, it's important for us to remember that the preacher's conclusion is not that life is meaningless, right? We, we shouldn't come to Ecclesiastes and hear the preacher just crying out, it's all meaningless, meaningless, everything's pointless and useless, just abandon it all. That's not the conclusion he's coming to, and that's not what he's saying here. But rather, what he is saying is that any attempt for us to find meaning in life is futile. It's beyond our grasp. We are incapable of determining what it is. And as we read through the book and as we 
have listened as Kevin has preached through the book, there are several key realities that the preacher keeps bumping into, which cause meaning to be all the more difficult to come across. These realities are why he struggles to find meaning in life. And the major one that keeps coming up several times in the book is death. Right? The preacher sees death as the great equalizer that ends all men's lives and legacies. Right? The fool and the wise man both meet the same exact end. This is summarized in, in chapter 1, verse 11 where we read, there is no remembrance of former things, or literally that could be translated people. So there's no remembrance of former things or remembrance of former people. (coughs) Nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. The writer of Ecclesiastes, he he just sees death as the the end of all things. And And it's this great equalizer that puts everybody on the same plane. Another reality that frustrates the preacher is the mystery of time. And that's where we're going to put our attention this morning as we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Just as death is a thorn in the preacher's pursuit of meaning and purpose, so is time. As we look at this passage this morning, I want us to um, really try to experience the pain and the frustration of the preacher. Right? I, think, I think Ecclesiastes is a lot, a lot like the Psalms in that we are meant to kind of resonate with what's being said. Right? You, you go into the Psalms. How many times have you gone into the Psalms to read them? And, and you're hearing what the, the psalmist is saying and you're thinking to yourself, man, I know exactly what that feels like. I know exactly what he's experiencing right now. Well, let's be honest. Ecclesiastes is really the same kind of thing. And, and maybe you've already done this as we've gone through Ecclesiastes <coughs> excuse me, you've already experienced this. You, you're listening to him speak and saying, man, these are, these are thoughts and ideas that I've had in my own head already. And so what I want us to do this morning is I, I want us to experience this. I, I want us to resonate and associate with the frustration of the preacher, but we must not end where he ends. Right? As we experience this and as we associate with this frustration, we can't stop where he stops, but rather we've got to press in deeper to the truth of the gospel. So as we look at this passage this morning, what I want to do is we're, we're going to break it into two main sections that I think will help us better understand it, better see the truth in the text. And so we're going to break it into two main sections, and the first of those is going to be verses 1 through 8. In 1 through 8, the preacher uh, states this truth observation, and then he illustrates it. And then in verses 9 through 15, the preacher offers his commentary and his assessment of that truth. And then lastly, we're going to ask ourselves how this applies to us this morning. I, um, is there, is there going to be a, a slide? I don't know. I sent Kevin my notes, and he said he was going to make a slideshow. So if it's awesome, Kevin made it. If it's horrible, Kevin made it. Um, so let's look at the first section there, verses 1, one through 8. So look at uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Um, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. Now, Probably some of you already are like humming uh, the birds in your brain, right? Turn, turn, turn. It's already there. Let's just go ahead and acknowledge the fact that it is there, and that's cool. That's all right, all right? So this, verse, this first verse, <coughs> excuse me, what the preacher does is he makes an assessment, he, or he, he pronounces a, a truth observation 
uh, that has come from his wisdom and his experience in life. And what he says is that everything under heaven, right, every matter, every instance, every occurrence has a specific time and season for it to occur. This is born out of, most likely, his wisdom and his experience and his observation of life. Every matter under heaven has a time and a season in which it is to occur. And then what he does in verses 2 through 8 is he puts together an extremely beautiful poem that illustrates this truth, right? So 2 through 8 is poetic in nature, and he lists out or he illustrates this truth that every matter under, the, under heaven has a time or a season. Now, as we look at verses 2 through 8, this is not meant to be an exhaustive list, but rather it's meant to represent every life experience that we might encounter. And so we look at it. There's a time to be born, and there's a time to die. There's a time to plant. There's a time to pluck up what is planted. There's a time to kill. There's a time to heal. There's a time to break down. There's a time to build up. So we have these these opposites, right? These, These opposite occurrences, and they cover everything. They cover life. They cover death. They cover work, a time to plan, a time to pluck up. They cover relationships, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. They, they in, uh, uh, include uh, community life. They even include things like national matters or national concerns. There's a time for war and there's a time for peace. And so throughout this poem here in verses 2 through 8, what the preacher is doing is he's giving us this list that represents everything that you might encounter in life and saying that every event and every situation that you encounter in life has a season and a set time for it to happen. And as we come to the end of verse 8, again with the birds playing in our brain, right, we might be tempted to kind of put a positive spin on this. Right? If we were just to read verses 2 through 8, we might be tempted to go, wow, he's like, you know, this is really philosophical. This is like existential. This is like the preacher just kind of all of a sudden kind of just, he's, he's found this, this place where he can just rest and go, you know what? It's out of my hands. It's out of my control. There's a time for everything. And almost like a 60s hippie, man, he's just sitting up there just chilling. But that's not the case. This doesn't create for the preacher a positive resolve, but rather this just increases his frustration. It increases his vexation. It makes him all the more aware that finding meaning in life is beyond our grasp. And we know that because of the commentary that he offers on this section beginning in verse 9. So as you look at 9 through 15, what the the preacher is doing for us is, is he's offering us his assessment of this truth. Right? His, his assessment of the fact that there's a time and matter for everything under heaven. And again, I think it's helpful if we kind of break up 9 through 15 into smaller pieces that helps us kind of see how it all works together. So, in verses 9 through 11, what the preacher does is he offers his commentary or assessment on this truth. In 12 through 13, what he does is he uh, communicates his frustrated resignation in light of this truth. And then in 14 or 15, that resignation of the preacher is further grounded in an understanding of the sovereignty of God. So let's look at these verses together. So looking at 9 through 11, this, this section begins with uh, a question of frustration. Right? A question of frustration. What gain 
has the worker from his toil. Right, we can't read verse 9 apart from verses 1 through 8. So essentially what's happening here is after just this waxing eloquent, this poem about the nature of time, his first response is to go, what, what gain or advantage do I have from my toil? Right, this is the same question that he asked back in chapter 1, verse 3. And, and this idea of gain means advantage or, or profit. Right, so essentially, he's, he's looking at this reality that everything has its own time and place, and he's asking himself, in light of that truth, what advantage or profit do I have in all of my labor? Earlier in chapter 2, verse 18, it was death that rendered toil vain, and now, here in chapter 3, it's, it's time. Right, in chapter 2, death comes, so what profit is all of my work? Chapter 3, there's this crazy reality of time, and so what profit is there to my work? This question is further fleshed out and kind of expounded on in verses 10 through 11. Look at 10 and 11. He says, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man, <coughs> excuse me, to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from beginning to end. And so here, here the preacher tells us why he comes to this conclusion. Here he, he expounds on why he sees his toil and his work as vanity. And he says because he, says because he, he understands that, that God is the one who puts all things in place, right? So in, in verses 1 through 8, he confesses that every matter has a purpose, a place, and a time. And then in 10 and 11, he says, it's God who does this, right? It's God who makes everything appropriate and right for its time. So the reason every matter under heaven, heaven has a time and place is because God sets that. He's the one who sets the time and place of all things. It's not the preacher, right? The preacher doesn't go, I'm the one who chooses the time and the place and the season for things. He says it's God, the one who stands outside of time. He's the one who sets the right time and place and purpose and season for everything. And even more so, he says, God's made us aware of this truth, right? He says, yet God has put eternity into our hearts. What does that mean? He means that God has made us aware of this reality of time, that he's the one who sets things in place, and that time is not some kind of random movement through space. I was, I was watching, a, um, watching or listening. I get confused a lot between my senses. And, uh, but it had to do with this uh, uh, nature show of some kind. And it talked about time being a man-made construct. And that was kind of interesting. Time as a man-made construct. And the reality is that time is not a man-made construct. We didn't invent time, right? Like, like we weren't the ones that were like, you know what, I got a great idea. We should, we should have the sun kind of move through the sky in a schedule. And, and then on the flip side of that, we should, we should have the moon kind of move through the sky on a schedule. Because if we did that, then our days would be easier to track, our events would be easier to place within some kind of framework where we could keep track of them. So, so you know what we should do? The ancient Greeks got together. That's what they did. The ancient Greeks got together and said, guys, let's invent time. So it's a brilliant idea. Let's, let's do this. That's not what happened. What, what did we do? We observed time. We became aware of the fact that we experience time. We became aware of the fact that time exists outside of us. 
Time was invented the moment God said, let there be light. And so what the preacher is doing is he's saying, look, I, I resonate with this. I realize this, that everything has a perfect, appropriate, beautiful place and time. And it is God who sets these things in place and he has made us aware of it yet. What? Yet so that we can't figure out what he's doing from beginning to end. Yes, God has made things beautiful in his time, and yes, we're aware of that, but God has also not allowed mankind the ability to fully understand what time it is. And so here in a moment, the the preacher clearly, concisely, wonderfully, beautifully, he sees the limits of mankind. He sees our brokenness. He sees our limitations. He sees how we can observe things and we can have awareness of them, but we are powerless to fully understand them or to change them or to mold them or to move them to our will. The preacher sees rightly the sovereignty of God over time as well as his own place within time. God controls time while the preacher is only able to experience time. And you can sense and you can feel his limits and his vulnerability, can't you? That, that there's, there's something he's aware of, there's something he understands, and yet he cannot change it, mold it, understand it, or move it. I think, uh, I think in a really keen way, and she's not in here, so it's, it's always fun. Every time I preach, none of my family's here. I don't know if this is like purposeful. I've got Asher. Asher looked at me. He's like, I'm going to stick around. He's like, I'm staying, Dad. Way to go, buddy. All right. But Madeline, I think Madeline in a keen way is experiencing this lack of control, right? So she's my oldest daughter, uh, my oldest child. She's about to be 12. She's convinced she's 25. And she feels, she feels that she should have more control. She feels that she should have more say. She's aware of the workings of the house. She's aware of certain things more so than the younger kids are. But she also is aware of the fact that she can't do anything about them. And she's pressing against this reality, right? And dad has to be there and say, listen, be patient, be be watchful, wait, your time will come. But the truth is that we feel the same thing, don't we? Like, like, we experience the same reality. We see things, and, and we know how they kind of function, and we have an awareness of them. Maybe it's your work, and, or, or maybe, it's, maybe it's the grocery store. I don't know where it is, right? But we have this awareness of things, and yet we sense our own limitations. We're, we're keenly aware of our own inability to do anything about the situation. And here the preacher is looking at time, and he's like, we've got this awareness of it. We've even got this awareness that there's an eternity to it, and yet we can't do anything about it. And so one through eight, he's not having some kind of hippie existential moment. He is so frustrated because he knows that verses one through eight are true. And he also knows how limited he is in light of the sovereignty of God over time. And so this frustration brings him to a conclusion. Look at verse 12 and 13. 
I perceive that there is nothing better for them, that is mankind, than to be joyful, to do good as long as they live, also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So this is his resignation. This is the place he's come to in light of the sovereignty of God and his limited weakness. Now, again, I don't think we should put a positive spin on this. I don't think the preacher is sitting down saying, well, this is what we should do in light of it. This is the good thing. that This is, this is what we should do, um, and this is how we should live. Uh, I, I think that is denying the intensity of his struggle. Right? I think that's denying the intensity of his intellect in this struggle for him just to kind of resign himself to this. But he sees no other avenue, right? He sees no other avenue than what we might call carpe diem. I was talking to Robert the other day, and we were talking about, uh, I know there's a film and theology, and I realized I reference movies far too much. But if we're going to do film and theology as a church, I feel like I can reference movies. And if you haven't seen them, that's on you, right? But do you remember Dead Poets Society? That's a really good movie, right, with uh, Robin Williams. And that, that concept of, of carpe diem, what does it mean? It means seize the day. Right? So this is what the preacher does. The preacher, he looks at life. He looks at time specifically. He sees his weakness. He sees his limitations. He sees his inability to do anything about time. And what does he say? He says, the best we can do is seize the day. Eke out the best existence you can in the time that you have. Be good to one another. Work hard. Try to find some joy in your toil. Try to find some joy in your work. And eat and drink and be merry. And when he says, this is God's gift to mankind, I don't think he's really doing this in a positive way. I think he's saying, this is how the sovereign God is gifting us in our ignorance and our foolishness. Just go off, eat, drink, be merry, try to do the best you can, try to eat out the best living you can, right? Again, going back to like Madeline. If I look at Madeline and she's just like, you know, frustrated about not having the, the control or the position or the place she wants, and I just look at her and say, you know what, Maddie, just go downstairs, play your guitar, pretend like the world's all right, and just eke out the best living you can. That's how the preacher sees the sovereign God interacting with mankind. Kind of sending us off and just saying, look, I'm in control of all things. You're not. Just kind of go carpe diem, man. Live out the best life you can. And so this is the resignation that he's come to. This is the place that he has come to, that we should just live in this ignorance of time, and work out the best existence that we possibly can. And in the very last verses of this section, what the preacher does is he grounds this kind of carpe diem resignation further by addressing even more so the sovereignty of God. So we might be tempted to ask him at this point, like, man, why? Like, why are you coming to this conclusion? Why is it that you've just kind of like, kind of thrown your hands up and just said, look, let's just do the best we can. And I feel like 14 and 15, what he does is he just gives, he gives further credence to his conclusion. He, he kind of, he grounds it so deeply to say, look, you might want to argue against my conclusion, but let's think about this. And so what does he say in 14 and 15? He says, I perceive. Again, I think it's important here in 12 and 14 he says, I perceive both times. A lot of the preacher's interaction with life is based off of what? His own perception. Right? right now, at least in our section right here, the baseline for understanding all things is what? The preacher. He's testing everything. He's weighing everything. He is, he is the plumb line by which he's measuring everything. So I perceived 
that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God has done it. True. That's true. God is sovereign over his creation. God acts in his creation as he wills. God does with his creation as he wills. And nothing can be added to what God does or nothing can be taken away from what God does. All that God does is perfect. Right now, if you want a really bad illustration of this, I'll I'll give you one. So when I was a young kid um, growing up in the, the rough late 80s, early 90s, rough time, all right, I loved playing with G.I. Joes. And I'm not talking about those giant G.I. Joes. I'm talking about the little guys with the arms and flexible legs, backpacks, machine guns, and all. I loved G.I. Joe. Anybody else or am I by myself on that? Thank, I appreciate that, Landon. Thank you very much. Did you raise your hand? Oh, I thought you were playing with you. I was like, wow, that's awesome. Uh, so I would go down to my basement, and I would set up like a whole G.I. Joe world. Like I had Cobra on the stairs, right? So Cobra's up on the stairs in the mountain bases. G.I. Joe's down on the ground. I even got, we would get like Domino's Pizza, and they used to put these little things that <clears throat> would, would hold the box up. That became a card table for my G.I. Joe's. So they had a card table. They're playing cards. They're shooting dice. I'm telling you, man, they were gangster, all right? And I would, I did everything. Like I, I was the youngest of four. My older brothers were gone. My sister didn't play with toys like me like this. So I'm down there. I'm running the show. Like literally, Everything that's happening in that G.I. Joe world is happening because I'm making it happen, right? So if a dude got shot and he got thrown against a brick wall, boom, he can't say anything about it. I decide. It's my G.I. Joe world. Now, the bad part of the illustration is that I'm capricious, I'm sinful, I'm broken, and I'm wicked. God is not. But in a very similar way, he is in control of his creation. It is his creation. He is the one who spoke it into existence. He made it. And he does as he pleases with his creation. So the preacher says this. He sees this and he says this. He even gives us a purpose or a reason so that people fear before him. Now, we're not going to do a whole biblical exposition on fear, but we understand that when the Bible talks about fearing God, it doesn't talk about being afraid that God's going to hurl a lightning bolt from Mount Olympus, right? Am I correct in that? We, we understand that, right? When we say fear God, we're not worried that God's going to snap his fingers and strike us dead. When the Bible talks about fearing God, it talks about a reverential awe. It talks about an awareness, an understanding of who God is and who we are in relationship to him. And so we understand that he is a sovereign God and that we are not. That he is the one who works in his creation as he chooses and we are not. And so God has done these things so that we might understand who he is and in comparison, know who we are. And then he says, and I love, I love the, 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 the grammar here. I mean, pay attention. That which is already has been. What is has been? I believe that's past perfect, correct? I taught, I taught grammar for a while over in Korea, but I believe has been is past perfect. That which is to be, that's future tense, already has been. Again, Past perfect, right? So the the author here, the preacher here, what is he saying? He's saying God does what he wants to do. Nobody can add to it. Nobody can take away from it. 
<coughs> and that which he's already done has already been, and that which he is going to do has already been, because it's in the mind of God. It already has been. He is sovereign. He's outside of time. Again, why do I come to this resignation? Why do I come to this carpe diem? Because God exists out of time, and he's going to do what he wants to do, and I can't do anything about it. I can't take anything away from it, and it's settled in his mind because he is God. And so the sovereignty of God, specifically over and above time, is driving the preacher to this place where he resigns himself to say, eat, drink, and be merry. For tomorrow, we die. So now it's one thing to understand what the preacher is saying here in the text. It's another thing for us to understand how it applies to us. And so what I want to do is I want to bring out two points of of application that I think can help us understand this text and understand how it applies to us today as we read it. The first of these is that I think we need to recognize our limits. I think we need to deal with our brokenness and see our limitations just as the preacher has. It's very easy when we read the Bible to kind of distance ourselves sometimes or even in interaction with other people, right? To distance ourselves from other people. That's what we love to do, right? Uh, my heart is probably sick with this and, and, and more so than I think. I, I have these glimpses of awareness of my own pride and arrogance and issues. God gives me glimpses. I need to deal with them. It's probably far worse than I think it is. But we, we love to do this thing where we kind of distance ourselves from people. We recognize their faults, their failures, their issues, and then we kind of pull back and go, man, I'm glad that I don't, I don't have that. I'm glad I don't deal with, with stuff like that dude does, right? Or that lady does. And so maybe we feel this, this tension sometimes with the preacher, but I don't, I don't want to allow that to happen. I don't want you to pull back and see your distance, but rather I want you to associate with him. Because I, I think we can readily associate with him here. I think we can feel his frustration. I think if we gave our minds to consider these things as he has, I think we would get frustrated as well. In fact, when I, when I was reading this uh, in preparation for preaching, like as I was studying, I read through verses 1 through 8, and the very first question I asked myself is, well, what time is it? There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to pluck, a time to plant. There's all these things, and the first question that comes to our mind is, well, what time is it? What time is it right now? And even more so than that, how do I know what time it is? You see, I think, I think what the preacher is doing is so brilliant that if we pass over it, we'll miss it. Like, he's pressing deeper than we think. Right? He is pressing so deep, not just to the question of what time is it, but even deeper to the question of how do you even know what time it is. Right, this is an epistemological reality. He's asking himself, how do I know what I know? And how can I know that I know that I know? He is seeing so clearly his limitations in his brokenness of the world around him that he has glimpses and feelings and, and perceptions of things, but he is incapable in himself, despite his massive wisdom, of putting it all together. 
And so we read this and we think to ourselves, how, how can we know that we know? How can we know the time? How, how can we understand these things? And so we begin to feel the frustration of the preacher. And ultimately, I think that we can and should be able to readily associate with the frustration of the preacher because I think ultimately his frustration is grounded in the fall. I don't think, I don't think it's coincidence that the preacher constantly brings up a worker in his toil. If you go back to Genesis chapter 3 where God is pronouncing judgment upon man, woman, serpent, and creation. If we go back and we read Genesis 3, 17 through 19, this is what we read. Is this on there or maybe not? So, I'm sorry, I probably, I told you there's going to be some changes. I apologize. But if we go back and we read Genesis 3, 17 through 19, and you can flip there if you have a Bible or if you have one of those fancy apps. And to Adam, he, that is God, said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken. You are dust, and to the dust you shall return. What is God saying to Adam in his punishment? saying, Adam, now because of your sin, the ground is at odds with you. The ground which you were supposed to have dominion over, the ground which you were supposed to have rule over, the ground which you were supposed to have authority over, which was going to yield to you its bounty, is now at odds with you, Adam. And you're going to labor, and you're going to work, and you are going to eke out food by the sweat of your face. And then what's going to happen after all your work, all your labor, all your toil? You are going to die. And you're going to return to that dust, for out of that dust you were taken. And I think the preacher, he has this in his brain as he's thinking through life. We are fallen, we are broken, and this world is not the way it is supposed to be. We labor and we toil and we work, and only to end in the grave. And understanding these things and figuring these things out is beyond us because of our sinfulness, because of our brokenness, because we are limited and we are fallen. And against our limitations, against our fallenness, against our sinfulness stands the clear sovereignty of God. As we looked at this text, it's God who stands outside of time And we are the ones who are bound to it. And so we feel this frustration. We feel our fallenness. We experience our brokenness. But the question we have to ask ourselves is, should we end with the same decision as the preacher? Should we contemplate the sovereignty of God and our brokenness and our labor and our toil and our our limited nature? And should we just say, you know what, forget it. I'm just going to do the best I can. 
I'm going to eke out the best life I can and hope at the end that it all works out. You realize how many people live their life that way. How many people live their life thinking, you know, I'm just going to do the best I can and we'll see how it all shakes out. But is that the reality we're called to by the gospel? Is that the reality we're called to by Christ? Is that the reality that the scriptures is moving us to? No. No, it's not. We are not supposed to leave here in hopeless resignation and just say, you know what, forget it. I'll do what I can. Why? Why are we not supposed to end our lives that way? (coughs) And the reason is because of Christ. Because of Jesus. As a preacher considers the sovereignty of God, his conclusion is one of almost hopeless resignation. I perceive that God's going to do what he's going to do. Nobody can add to it. Nobody can take away from it. He stands outside of time. He puts things in, our, in time. He gives us an awareness of it, but, not, but yet so that we can't figure out what he does from beginning to end. And, and in light of God's sovereignty, he comes to this almost hopeless conclusion. He understands the sovereign nature of God. Yes, that is true, but his conclusion is wrong. You see, as we read chapter 3, what what does the preacher see? He sees rightly the transcendence of God, right? He sees rightly that God stands separated from his creation. And that's true. God is not part of his creation. God stands outside of his creation. He is independent of his creation. We are dependent, right? But God stands outside of his creation. He transcends his creation. And the preacher sees this, and he rightly understands this. But in contemplating the transcendence of God over and above his creation, he fails to consider or to grasp God's intimate association with his people. And this is what moves him to this place of hopeless resignation. He fails to to consider or grasp or think of God's intimate association with his people, an association made perfectly and wonderfully clear in Jesus Christ. We just went through the Gospel of John, and one of the things that becomes abundantly clear in the Gospel of John is that Jesus is the perfect revelation of the Father. And he has come to make the Father known. You see, so, so yes, God is transcendent, but the transcendent, sovereign God who stands outside of time has done what? He has invaded his creation. He has come in Christ Jesus and he has stepped into time with us. The God who doesn't experience time, the God who who the scriptures say a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like a day, what does he do? He condescends and he steps into time with us. To do what? To make this transcendent, all-knowing, sovereign Father known to us. He steps into creation to reveal the Father to us, to not leave us in the dark like the preacher feels he is, like stranded in the dark with nothing to do but to eat, drink, and be merry. But Jesus invades our existence, and he says, this is the Father. 
right? So much so that, that when Philip, was it John 14, right? Or 16, I don't know. But Philip says, you know, he says, just show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And what does Jesus do? He like smacks his head and he's like, oh, cow. Dude, have I been with you so long? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So what do we learn? The Father's loving and gracious and kind. The Father who stands outside of time makes his will known to us so that we don't live in ignorance and foolishness, but we have through Christ Jesus the will of God revealed to us. And so Christ invades our frustration. He invades our brokenness. He invades our limitations. And through his death, burial, and resurrection, he sets us free. So that you know, do you you know where we are right now? Do Do you know where your life is right now, in this moment, if you are in Christ Jesus? I'm going to read something ridiculous to you. All right? Kevin, I apologize again. This is, this, is, this is unplanned. Sorry. Coming to me in the moment, but I feel like it needs to be read. This is from Ephesians. Listen. Listen to what Paul says. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So what Paul is doing here is he is thanking and praising God for his purposes and plans of salvation that he has accomplished in Christ Jesus on our behalf. And he's saying it's all happened according to the sovereign purpose and plan of God, right? So the sovereign God that the writer of Ecclesiastes sees that stands out of, outside of time, this is the sovereign God who has invaded our creation, who has invaded time, who has come to us, and through his sovereign purposes and plans has brought salvation to us through Christ Jesus, right? And then Paul says later in chapter 2, he says this, he says, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, that the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, carrying out the passions or desires of the body, and uh, passions of the flesh and uh, desires of the body and the mind, and we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Stop right there. So chapter 1, Paul says this sovereign God, according to his sovereign purposes and plans, has brought salvation through his son Jesus Christ to bring, him to, to bring us to himself. Chapter 2, he's elaborating on this some more, and he says, remember, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
You were obedient to Satan, carrying out the desires of your body and your flesh. You were children of wrath. But God has come, and he has brought salvation through Jesus Christ. Even when we were dead, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And did what? <laughs> and did what? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where are we right now? Where are we? We are in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And our lack of perception of that doesn't change reality. Paul is not talking about the future. He is not saying you will someday be with Jesus in the heavenly places. He says right now, in Christ Jesus, you are in the heavenly places with him, seated at the right hand of God. He says the same thing in Colossians, right? In Colossians, he says, set your mind on the things that are above, where your life is hid in Christ. And this is what the sovereign God has done through Jesus. He's come into our brokenness. He's come into our limitations, and he has made us alive together with Christ. He has revealed himself. He has made himself known. He has pulled back the veil, and he has said, come close, my children. Come close and know me. Come close and be reconciled to me and I will reveal to you who I am. And we drink in and we bask in his glory. Madeline and I were having a conversation the other night outside. And uh, it's a beautiful conversation. It's something I've always wanted to do. I was sitting outside smoking a cigar and talking to my oldest child. I was like, this is what dreams are made of right here. And we were talking about God, Bible, Jesus, and, you know, she, she makes a comment that probably a lot of us make, which is just, it's hard to understand. And I said, man, well, it's God. <laughs> He's infinite. So if God's infinite, do you think we can understand him completely? And she says, no. I said, so what do you think eternity's about? And she said, learning more about God. And I said, bingo. Eternity. Like, we always wonder, what's heaven like? Are we going to my kids are like, are we going to fly? Are we going to eat cupcakes? Can we go in space? I don't know, but I know one thing, that it will be an eternity spent gaining a better and better understanding of the sovereign God of Ecclesiastes chapter 3. That we will learn to know him more through his son, Jesus Christ. So should we reach the same conclusion as the preacher? No. By no means. Because yes, our God is transcendent. Yes, he stands outside of his creation. But by his grace and his mercy, he has come into his creation to make himself known. And it's because of his sovereignty that some of our greatest hopes and promises are built on these things. How many of y'all like Romans 8, 28? How many of y'all like that verse? Like, man, that's a good verse. I'll use that, you know, when I screw up and when I sin. I'll use that one when, you know, things don't go the way I want them to go. Am I, is it just Pastor Kevin and I here? Anybody else? Thank you very much, Laura. I appreciate that. Thank you, Ben. I think his hand's up. Romans 8, 28, right? We know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Have you ever thought about that verse for a moment? All things. What does all things mean? Not a trick question. Huh? Everything. What thing is not included in all things? Nothing. All things is everything. What does that mean? If all things work together for good, 
For those who love the Lord and call according to his purpose, that means that our sovereign father has to have all things under control. You know, I'll say things to my kids like, it's all going to be all right, it's all going to work out, and I mean it, and I hope it, and I want it to be so, but the truth is I can't control everything. I have a, I have a close friend and coworker at work who is now in the midst of battling stage four cancer. And the doctors have told him that he is medically incurable. Three kids, 13 and under, one of them with cerebral palsy, and the doctor has told him he has one to three years to live. In my family, we've been praying for him, and we've been praying for a miracle. We've been praying for God to crush the cancer. But what does a dad say to those kids at that point? What do you say? What do you say if there is no sovereign God who rules over all things? But because there is that dad, in a way that I don't understand, can look at those kids and say, all things work together for good. For those who love the Lord and called according to his purpose. That promise is built on the fact that we have a sovereign God. What about Philippians 1.6? Paul says, now I'm confident this one thing, that he who began this good work in you, what will he do? He will bring it to completion. He will bring it to completion. Paul says later that we have been predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, Jesus Christ. It's Romans 8. That's built on the sovereignty of God. And in a way that I think is so, so amazing, Because of the sovereignty of God, because he has invaded our lives through Christ Jesus, we now know that there is gain, profit, and advantage in our labor. Time and time again in Ecclesiastes, the the preacher asks, what gain does the worker have from his toil? What gain does the worker have from his toil? Well, listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. If you're familiar with 1 Corinthians 15, this is where the Apostle Paul is expounding on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, this is what the Apostle Paul says. <clears throat> in light of the resurrection, the fact that Jesus is raised from the dead and there is a bodily resurrection, listen to what Paul says. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me tell you something. That's not coincidental. I was talking to Annie about this last night. Sometimes we read the Bible and we're like, oh, well, that's odd. <laughs> how, how coincidental is it that Paul says your labor's not in vain and we're in Ecclesiastes? Guess who knew Ecclesiastes really well? This dude. Guess who was a scholar of the Old Testament? This dude. Guess who's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Any guesses? This dude. And so when Paul looks at us and he says, your labor is not in vain, what is he doing? He's speaking against Ecclesiastes, not against it in that it's false, but saying, look, because of Christ, because the transcendent God has come into us, into our creation, has intimate association with us through Jesus Christ, we know that our labor is not in vain. It's not meaningless. It's not pointless. There is gain. There is advantage. And there's something to be won by our labor. Because the sovereign God has come to us through Jesus 
Christ. And so in Christ, the Sovereign Father has revealed himself in Christ Jesus. He comes to us in the midst of our limitations, in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our frustration, in the midst of our confusion, and he makes known to us the Father. But this is only found in Christ. Outside of Jesus, we are unable to move past the conclusion of the preacher. Outside of the gospel, we are incapable of going beyond eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow you shall die. And that's exactly what the Apostle Paul said. He said, if the resurrection isn't true, we above all are most to be pitied. And if the resurrection isn't true, then we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we shall die. But the resurrection is true. Christ has come. And if we are in Christ and all the promises and the hope and the truth of the gospel are ours. And the God who stands outside of time has revealed himself in time so that we might know him and know his will. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you for your word. We praise you and thank you for your truth, God. We pray that uh, you would help us to understand all the more the truth, the wonder, and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, for what you have done. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We're going to have a time of response now as a church and um, a couple things. We do that uh, through singing songs of praise unto the Lord. Also, uh, the Lord's Supper is available in the back of the room. Um, and want to encourage you that if you are a brother or sister in Christ who has repented of your sins and you're trusting in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, then at this time to stand up and to take the Lord's Supper. No better way to remind ourselves of what Christ has done for us. No better way to connect Ecclesiastes to the gospel than to, to take the Lord's Supper and proclaim that it is the broken body of Jesus and the spilled blood of Jesus that saves us and redeems us. Oh. So as we take this time to reflect on the word being preached, um, this song um, is new to our church. We didn't hear it before. Um, but speaking to God being faithful and being aware of what we do are and why.